from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. Learn more at aarp.org wv. The Charleston Gazette Mail, using its CGM app to deliver the latest news, traffic, and weather alerts, keeping you in the know while you're on the go. Lumos Networks, online at lumosnetworks.com. West Virginia University, online at wvu.edu. Orion Strategies, professional public relations, government affairs, creative services, and research and polling, with offices in Charleston, Buchanan, Martinsburg, Pittsburgh, and Columbus. Welcome to the legislature today from the Capitol building. It's day 35 of the 84th West Virginia legislature, the last day the House can introduce bills, but there are some exceptions. Joining me to talk about that and some of the major stories we're following is senior reporter Dave Mistich. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks. And so what, what might those exceptions be and what's the significance of this day in the right. House? It's appropriations, very, very specific, uh, but by and large, most of the bills that people are going to be watching, um, you know, all the big bills, um, things that could actually affect, you know, agencies or, or state law, state code, um, you know, like a, they're, they're the ones that need to, to be out and introduced today. That's so. right. The exceptions, I, I believe, include special appropriations, um, uh, resolutions, uh, joint resolutions, and concurrent resolutions. Right. Well, the big story, of course, is the Comprehensive Education Reform Bill. Uh, the education, the House Education's version started this morning in the um, in the House Finance Committee. A very early morning, at seven o'clock, the meeting held. What happened since then? Well, I guess we should go back to yesterday. Yeah. You know, the, the House Finance had offered their own version of the bill. Um, it had upped the number of charters. It had put back in education savings accounts. Ultimately, the House Finance Committee's version of that bill was rejected last night. Uh, this morning they went in, the House Education Committee's version was uh, approved through that committee. Um, you know, and it, just to refresh everyone on what that bill does, uh, it caps charters at this point for two pilots, not, not, not very specific in what those pilots would be. Uh, it wipes out education savings accounts. There's a no, the, it removes the non-severability clause from the bill that was passed in the Senate. Um, I spoke to Delegate Mick Bates about, you know, this bill coming through the committee. He's, you know, the minority chair of uh, House Finance. Uh, here's what he had to say about Senate Bill 451. If we're going to do a comprehensive education reform, then I think we need to do all of it. Uh, and there are some things that I think are missing from the bill as well. So, um, you know, I think the House has done a good job with this bill through last week, um, you know, dealing with what was basically shoved through the Senate. And then yesterday we went back to this sort of, you know, ram-bam, thank you ma'am kind of approach to things. And uh, that's just the wrong way to do things. And again, as I had mentioned, uh, as I had mentioned, the, the House uh, Finance Committee had offered, you know, some, some ideas that would up, again, the charters, uh, that would reinstate education savings accounts. 
Um, House Finance Chair Eric Householder um, is, is a big proponent of those, those particular provisions. I spoke to him today after the House floor session about the bill coming through his committee and now going to the floor. And here is uh, House Finance Chair Delegate Eric Householder. Well, I'm pleased that we do have the opportunity on second reading to make amendments to make it a little stronger for people like myself. Uh, keep in mind, <clears throat> I would like to see unlimited uh, charter schools, unlimited ESAs, but uh, now it's just the will of this body. So I'm, I'm very optimistic and we'll see where it goes. And Dave, now it goes, uh, it's on amendment stage tomorrow. That's right, second reading. The bill will come up as Senate Bill 451 with amendments pending. That will be the strike and insert amendment, the House Education Committee's version of the bill. Um, so they'll go ahead and, 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 and choose whether or not to adopt that version of the bill. There could also be some amendments to that version. Um, you know, I, I would expect that you would see a lot of amendments offered to reinstate education savings accounts, to get charter schools to a higher number. Um, all, you know, as we all know, there's a lot of components to this bill, the tax credit for teachers. Um, you know, I, I, I would be hard pressed to believe that we won't see an amendment to virtually every provision that's listed throughout this bill. And you also um, spoke with uh, Delegate Miley. Yeah, so over the course of, of the past almost week in the House, uh, the controversy over Delegate Eric Porterfield's comments uh, likening the LGBT, LGBTQ groups to the KKK, uh, some other inflammatory comments that have come out. House Democrats have been pushing for House Bill 2733, uh, which would expand the Human Rights Act, the state's Human Rights Act, to include uh, gender as well as sexual orientation. Uh, they've tried and failed to get that bill to come out to the floor. Um, I spoke to Delegate Tim Miley, he's the House Minority Leader, about these efforts uh, in his caucus to push that bill out on the floor. And I know that one of the Republican delegates, Delegate Porterfield, has made some very controversial and, and damning comments this week toward the LGBTQ community. And I know the Republican Party purports to be repudiating his thoughts and idealism, but they've done nothing to show that they, in fact, uh, are distancing, distancing themselves from him. Actions speak louder than words. If they truly don't agree with Delegate Porterfield, they would join us in ending the discrimination now in West Virginia. And I did uh, reach out to various Republicans uh, about this controversy, about you know efforts by Democrats to push this bill. House Speaker, uh, you know, Roger Hanshaw has declined interviews, has not granted an interview, I should say, he hasn't necessarily declined, does not grant us an interview to talk about this matter. Uh, I spoke to Delegate Tom Fast, who chairs the House um, uh, Industry and Labor Committee that's, that's holding on to this House Bill 2733. Um, he wouldn't speak to us on camera, but he basically said that um, he believes that, that, you know, his committee is out of time. Um, there, there's still a couple more weeks left for the committee to get the bill out. Um, so I'm not sure that, that response, at least to me, seems kind of questionable. But he did make the point that the, the body has spoken on these motions to bring the bill out. And again, they have all been on party line vote. Democrats pushing for these, these bill, that, that bill to come out with the Republicans opposing. So. All right, now very quickly, one other action in the House, House Bill uh, 2878, that relates to updating the list of controlled substances, uh, controlled, uh, this is Schedule One controlled right. substances. Tell us about the, the amendment and uh, we'll get to those remarks. That's right, uh, you know, Democrats also offered amendment on this bill uh, that would have removed marijuana and cannabis from Schedule One, bringing it down to four. Um, you know, a lot, of con a lot of talk on the House floor today about that. Various arguments made on both sides. 
We'll take a quick look at some, some of the various uh, arguments from both Republicans and Democrats on this bill, and the amendment to this bill, I should say. Marijuana has never killed anybody, and heroin is something that kills people. That's Schedule One, And I think both there, there are both um, effects in the judicial system and effects for um, uh, at how it affects people medically. So I think it's time that we change this and we don't put our citizens into jail for years and years and years for something that has never killed anybody and that has medicinal uses. So I urge adoption of the amendment. I don't know what the big infatuation is with marijuana and being stoned out of your mind or whatever it is we're trying to accomplish here. And the assertion that marijuana has never killed anyone is just totally false. I know that from personal experience, and I'm not going to get into all that right now. But uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is not the, way, the right way to go for West Virginia. We need more sober-minded people who know what they're doing rather than having people walking around in, a, in some state of being in a buzz or something. So for those reasons, I urge that we reject this amendment. If we adopt the amendment, it will be in conflict with the federal law. This bill is something we deal with every year. We need to adopt in West Virginia the schedule of the federal drug list every year. It's a routine. Uh, if we adopt this amendment, it will be in conflict with the federal law and cause confusion. It was also stated that this would put us out of line with uh, federal guidelines. I would like to remind the body there is a rules bundle moving quite quickly through this building right now that would uh, change DEP rules that would put us out of line with EPA rules. All, it happens all the time in this building that we have, we pass things that are in conflict with federal guidelines such as the EPA and from other agencies. And that amendment that would have moved uh, marijuana from a Schedule One drug to a Schedule Four was voted down 42 to 57. On the Senate side, Senate Bill 40 is up for passage in the Senate tomorrow. Tonight, Belay spoke recently with the sponsor of the bill, the chair of the Senate Military Committee. Senator Ryan Weld has introduced Senate Bill 40, a bill intended to reestablish a military veterans court program in West Virginia. We had one in the first uh, judicial circuit, which I represent, that was very successful. Because sometimes people have issues that are related to their time in the service that have brought them to be in the criminal court system. And so a program like this doesn't just throw them in jail, it just doesn't incarcerate them for pleading guilty to the offense, but really goes to work to the root cause of the problem. Senator Weld says the bill is aimed at reestablishing a court system that will rehabilitate veterans. So it could create a myriad of different options for someone in a situation like that, stemming, looking at substance abuse treatment, mental health counseling, anger management. There could be incarceration included in what ends up happening to that defendant, but it really looks at the problem and not just looking to a short-term solution, but really why is that person here? Is it connected to their time in the service? And is that what brought them here? And how can we fix that? Senator Weld is himself a veteran. After serving in Afghanistan, he says he's seen soldiers return from service only to struggle with experiences they had overseas and ultimately make decisions that led them into criminal court. I think we owe it to them to try to figure out how we can address the root cause of that and how we can address the problem instead of just incarcerating them, but really find a way so that they can get back into society and be productive again. 
In addition to Senate Bill 40, Senator Weld is lead sponsor of Senate Bill 256, also designed to assist military veterans in the Mountain State. As a companion bill this year, I have a piece of legislation that would allow an individual to donate a, a portion of their income tax refund to Veterans Assistance here in West Virginia, to donate it there or to our Veterans uh, Cemetery here in uh, the southern part of the state of West Virginia. During the 2018 regular session, Weld saw Senate Bill 336 pass, allowing individuals renewing their driver's license to make a contribution to veterans' assistance in the state. He says the program has seen some success so far and is confident that the bills he introduced this session will be successful as well. For the Legislature Today, I'm Denite Belay. Establishing a statewide industrial hemp program is a legislative priority for the, West Virginia Legis for the West Virginia Agriculture Department this year. We'll speak with the Assistant Commissioner in just a moment, but first, Randy Yowie has this report. Chris Yeager started growing hemp as part of a 2014 West Virginia pilot project. In 2019, with hemp nationally legalized, Yeager processes and sells his hemp products, largely CBD-based, at his Appalachian Cannabis Company in Cross Lanes. Chris says he got into the hemp business when tragedy from the opioid crisis personally hit home. To be honest with you, um, I had two family members that had passed away from prescription opiates. CBD, uh, when administered, can help uh, folks that have been addicted to prescription drugs and opiates. Besides addiction, people use CBD oils to fight anxiety, epilepsy, gastrointestinal disorders, skin conditions, arthritis, and much more. West Virginia Agriculture Commissioner Kent Leonhardt adds that hemp fibers are used in dozens of everyday products. It was rope, they're using it in fabric, uh, they're making it, uh, they say weaving it with other materials can make it stronger than Kevlar for body armor in law enforcement in the military. Industrial hemp looks and smells like its cousin, marijuana. But with less than 0.3% THC, hemp will not get you high. You'll burn your lungs out before you get high smoking industrial hemp. It's not about getting high, it's about getting relief. And folks are successfully uh, getting relief to a multitude of different ailments and um, uh, doing it in a safe fashion. This year, Jaeger hopes to triple his hemp farm planting from 30 to near 100 acres. He says an average of investing $1,000 per acre for seeds and cultivation can reach up to $30,000 an acre in profits. There's so many farmers that want to be involved in growing uh, and, and processing industrial hemp. 199 have applied for the 2019 program. We can bring back some of the small farms that we lost. At a time where our resources are uh, depleted in West Virginia, we need to look at uh, an industry that's viable and, and could help West Virginia. It's a bifold solution to many problems that we face in this state. Commissioner Leonhardt says the United States Department of Agriculture will not give the okay to proceed without the state resources intact to run West Virginia's industrial hemp program. He's asking the legislature for $417,500 in startup costs this year and beginning next year, $350,000 in ongoing maintenance expenses. Leonhardt says state revenue returns from hemp will come in fees, income tax, and establishing a new and growing industry. Anytime that you have a cash crop that's going to bring revenue from other areas into the state, but right now my biggest challenge is working with the legislature to make sure we get the funding to get the program off the, off the ground. 
Getting the program off the ground will let West Virginia hemp farmers like Chris Yeager get their crop in the ground. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie. Joining us now is West Virginia Assistant Commissioner of Agriculture, Jennifer Greenleaf. Thank you so much for being here. It's good to meet you. Thanks for having me. Clearly, you're still working on getting the governor and many lawmakers to embrace a hemp industry in West Virginia. You've asked the governor for that funding. Uh, he has not, the, the governor's office has not funded uh, the, the hemp office. Now you're working with both the, the finance uh, committees here, the House and the Senate. What do you think your prospects are in getting that money for a hemp program? Um, I think they're really good, actually. So uh, the commissioner, Commissioner Leinhart, went and gave presentations before the House and Senate Finance Committees. Um, and the reception that we got to the concept of this new exciting industry in West Virginia was really good. Um, even people who might traditionally have more hesitation about about marijuana or, or that industry seemed really, really supportive of this industry uh, once the commissioner was able to explain the controls, the protections, and the, and the major differences between the industries. So there was an, so there's an ongoing education effort that is needed. There is a huge education, you know, similar plants, um, similar active ingredients, and it's all about quantities and how much you get um, in a plant. Um, but there is a lot of misinformation. That's actually what led to it being uh, made illegal several years ago, 70 or 80 years ago, was this misinformation and the confusion of the two crops. So we are, we're fighting an uphill battle in that, uh, but we think that the returns are gonna be very well worth it uh, when the industry gets going even more so here in West Virginia. And, and that's what I wanted you to talk about. What is the potential in terms of, of revenue to the state, um, jobs for these farmers? It, it's really exciting. Um, you know, West Virginia has has land challenges. We hear a lot about the lack of flat land. There's also a lack of huge areas of land to do agricultural production. Um, hemp is something that, um, as the story you just had on talked about, has great potential in small scale opportunities. For, so it's a great opportunity for small farmers to get into it. Um, the growing conditions in West Virginia are great, but then once you get beyond the actual growth, um, there's all of the products that get sold. Um, the, the CBD oil is obviously the hot topic, um, but there's all sorts of um, fiber-based products, everything from uh, building materials to agricultural materials to clothing materials that can be made out of that and we are we're really excited this year to start seeing some of that processing uh, begin to happen here in the state. Uh, the, the story mentioned 199 applications. What does, it, what does that mean? That's phenomenal but it's also a fourfold um, increase over last year in 2019 excuse me 2018 we had 46 applicants um, that were approved this year we had almost 200 apply and among those several of those will have multiple different tracts of land that they're working on um, so we think that the the actual production of hemp is gonna be five or six fold over what it was in 2018 which means more crop particularly in an area where West Virginia is kind of leading the way um, Kentucky's a little ahead of us um, but we're way ahead of most states which is not something that we get to say very often when we're talking about new industries. Another major legislative priority I wanted to talk about, uh, the Department of Agriculture is asking for $50 million to upgrade your facilities. Uh, you were expecting that perhaps in the governor's budget. It was not there. You, again, you are working with the finance chairman to see if that will indeed be in the budget, the, the next budget. 
tell us what the money would go for. That's a significant amount. It is, and, and I think the best way to, to phrase that is to say it was kind of a starting, a jumping off point for a negotiation. Um, North Carolina recently invested over $100 million in new laboratory facilities, and their labs were newer than ours. Um, as best we can tell, and we don't have exact figures and records on it, um, the labs were developed um, and instituted back in the 1980s. Technology has increased. Um, the capacity the department needs to have has increased. Um, and so tell us what, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. tell us what the laboratories do. What goes on there? Uh, the commissioner, Commissioner Leonhardt, is really proud of saying that the Department of Agriculture touches every single life in the state every single day. We do everything um, from testing of animal feed that comes into the state um, to uh, testing of food products that are consumed at major events internationally. Um, we do plant testing. We do our industrial hemp program, of course. Um, anything that relates to, to a foodborne um, illness that you might be concerned about, um, animals uh, that, have, that have, have died and they're trying to figure out why and it might have an adverse effect on, on the economy, it really runs the gamut. And these facilities were, were built, what? back in the 1950s? I'm the facilities told. were built in the 50s and they were, they were an Air Force radar facility and then in the 1980s they were rehabbed. Um, so they already started out at a disadvantage and then the department has made do. We have fantastic staff doing fantastic work in less than optimal facilities. But there are significant needs is what Unquestionably what so, unquestionably so. And, and we're, we're hopeful the commissioner has made a proposal to help us kind of uh, jumpstart it to, to put some of our own skin in the game um, with, with our farms. Um, and the, and the work that we do out there. Um, and we're, we're asking the legislature to help us out a little bit to not only give us authority to do that, um, but then also to pony up some money so that we can keep West Virginia as one of you know the top laboratories in the country. And there's just a little bit of time, the West Virginia Grown Program, there's, there's some pursuit in connecting uh, tourism funding with, with that West Virginia Grown Products. Absolutely, Commissioner Leonhardt is thrilled about this because West Virginians eat about seven to eight times as much food as West Virginians produce. And we think there's a huge opportunity to, to shrink that number, um, but it's a two-fold attack problem, right? You have to have both a demand for people to produce and then you have to have people producing. The West Virginia Grown Program seeks to attack that by advertising our, our foods um, that are made here in the state so that people get excited about it, they ask for more, and then our producers know that there's a market for their goods. Jennifer Greenleaf, Assistant Agriculture Commissioner, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. The House Judiciary Committee listened to opinions yesterday on a bill to allow the concealed carry of firearms on campuses. University presidents, students, faculty, security and police officers and parents spoke against House Bill 2519, while a small group spoke in favor. Here are some of those remarks from the public hearing. We know that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people. And the majority, 80% of these young people, kill themselves with a gun. Suicide is often an impulsive decision. Easy access to guns will likely result in more attempts and more attempts being successful. At the University of Kansas, um, they saw a 50% decrease in assaults, a substantial decrease in violent crime, and a 13% decrease in the number of totaled crimes committed the year after campus carry was passed, according to an article in the Washington Examiner. Firearms are a part of the West Virginia identity. Our state's flagship institution has a mascot that carries a gun. As a survivor of sexual assault, which occurred on campus, I'm disgusted that pre uh, previous and current students are being used to advance a political agenda. 
The proponents of this bill might as well say just what they're alluding to. If you didn't do anything in your power to stop an assault, it's your problem. And haven't we heard enough of that? I hate to break it to universities and security, but firearms are already on our campuses. So why this bill? The administration of publicly funded universities and colleges should not be able to tell responsible adults who have a concealed carry permit and have chosen to become a student that they will be expelled for exercising their right to self-defense that by law the state has already granted them. How does he live in close proximity with a roommate that may have bad body odor, may collect the wrong thing and not shower enough? That's one thing. You expect that when you're a college freshman, but you don't expect to have someone with concealed firearm nearby when they may be battling their own mental illness. And lastly, I want to touch base of what I feel our 18 to 20 year olds are being slighted here, uh, being described as these drug addled, drunk crime waves. Uh, I'd like to remind everyone that this state sends far more than its fair share of its sons and daughters into the United States military, where they have responsibilities greatly in excess of carrying a concealed pistol. And they do just fine. But the extensive training and backgrounds that we go through Every year, we spend four months at a state police academy to get certified. We also spend time every year training proficiencies. And we only have a 30% accuracy rate in stressful situations. So think about that when we're going to arm those and let those carry on campus who have zero training. House Bill 2519 would remove the Higher Education Institution's Board of Governors right to prohibit the concealed carry of firearms on their campuses. The bill is still under consideration in House Judiciary. And finally tonight, the Senate, the Senate recognized a group of young West Virginia women champions. Congratulated on the Senate floor, the Herbert Hoover High School girls softball team. The 2018 class AA champions went 33-0, were ranked fifth in the nation. Huskies coach Missy Smith was named National Coach of the Year. And off the field, the girls have a cumulative grade point average of 3.84. Congratulations. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening. Thank you.